Welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York that believes wherever you are on your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy this week's sermon. Well, welcome Hope Brooklyn. How y'all doing? Oh, you got to give me more. Thank you. Thank you. Let's try that one more time because friends, it's a new year. It's a new decade. Welcome, Hope Brooklyn. How y'all doing? Awesome. It is 2020. My name is Russ. I'm one of the pastors here. I am so excited. We are leveling up as a community this year. I am quite literally leveling up about four feet. Um, we, uh, for those of you who have been with us, you know that we've been having some storage issues and some light issues. So Bryant and I have been working together to try to downsize and reconfigure, and we're trying something new. We're going to try something new and and uh, see how it works. If you're here for the first time, you might be a little confused and you're like, what are you talking about? You're just a guy on a stage to which you are more correct than you realize I am just a guy on the stage. Um, but we are so excited you're with us. At Hope Brooklyn, we say wherever you are on your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. So if it is your first time, uh, you have a connection card in your hand or perhaps just a piece of paper in your palm. If you take a look at that, that is like the one-stop shop uh, for everything related to Hope Brooklyn. It's got all sorts of information. If you give us a little bit of yours, we'll give you a little bit of ours. Um, at the end of service, the welcome team will be out uh, at the door. So as you exit the auditorium, just drop it in the basket and someone from our team will be in touch with you with ways you can get more connected to what's going on at Hope Brooklyn um, throughout the week. This is also the time of our service where we bring our tithes and our offerings to God. Uh, behind me, um, or should I say to the side of me now, uh, there will be ways that you can financially participate. Um, for those who are with us toward the end of last year, y'all know that we were in this campaign uh, to uh, raise up and establish 70 reoccurring donors, 70 reoccurring donors. Um, as our way, as we move into 2020, to be a community that is no longer living on any outside support, we are only standing on our own feet um, and as a way that as we've been growing as a community um, to, to scale sustainably as well. I'm here to let you know that we are four people away. We are only four, yeah, give it up. That is really exciting. We are four people away from our goal. So if you're here and you, you know, during the holidays you weren't so sure what to do, if it was the right time, it's a new year. And maybe God is challenging your heart to set some new rhythms, some new steps that will raise your faith. And this is one of them. Um, so you can go online, you can text give, Venmo, or if you want to be one of those four people and set up a reoccurring gift, all those instructions are online as well, as well as on your uh, connection card. Now, I know we, we said as part of that, that um, uh, one of the incentives, because to be a church, well, the reason why I love the church is we don't just exist for ourselves, far from it. We exist as the body of Christ to bring life to the neighborhoods where we live. So we were saying for every new recurring donation set up, we would take 10% of the annual amount without, without any of it coming in and give it today to our friends at Safe Families for Children. And two Sundays on January 19th, a friend of ours who works for Safe Families, she'll be here and we're gonna give you the final tally. I'm super excited uh, to reveal just how much that's gonna be, that we're gonna give no strings attached to Safe Families as another example of why God chooses the local church to bless the neighborhood. So be here for that um, in two Sundays. It's gonna be great. And the only other announcement I have today is we are in a new year, a new semester, and so there's a new round of tables that we'll be launching. 
Tables are Hope Brooklyn's small groups. They are, they are meals in the neighborhoods where we live. Um, that includes both Hope Brooklyn people and our friends. We want to include our friends who maybe aren't ready um, to come here on Sunday yet, but are ready to eat and have some good conversations. And um, we are making a call for more table hosts. So again, another step. If you're like, hey, I want to get to know more people in the community this year. I want to open up my home um, for, for regular meals throughout the week. Um, we need you. We need you. So there will be a table info session next Sunday after service. Um, but a sign-up sheet for it is when you go out those doors to the right, there's a what's next table. There's a sign-up sheet for it. Uh, so you can put your name and email and we will be in touch. Thank you so much for that. January is going to be just a little preview of where we're going as a church. Uh, the rest of January, we're going to do a little mini-series on our relationship with God that we're entitling Hunger. And then in February and March, we're going to do a, a bulkier series, which I'm really excited about, where we're going to look at other relationships, relationships with friends, spouses, siblings, parents, children, what have you, colleagues. And we're titling that one, Lies We Love and How They're Killing Us. Provocative, yes. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. You're going to want to be there and bring a friend for that one. So I'm really excited about what we're, what we're moving toward as a community. But today, what we want to do is set the tone for the year. This is the first Sunday of the new year. It's the first Sunday of 2020. And what we want to do is we want to anchor ourselves in this Vision Sunday. In this 2020 vision, we are one of about thousands of churches who probably use that to anchor us of what God is impressing on our hearts, where he's inviting us as a community and as individuals this year, and where we're going. So join me in prayer, and then we're going to jump into today's topic. Lord, all glory is yours, whether we know it or not. You are the one who came into the earth you lived a perfect life, a life no one has ever lived. You died an unjust death. You laid your life down because you loved God and you loved this world. And God raised you up again because death could not hold you. All our hope is in that, Jesus. All our hope is in the reality of your resurrection. A resurrection which seems really um, mystical and tough to comprehend. But as we really turn our hearts to it, we realize that something happened. Something happened in that empty tomb. Your first disciples had encounters with you, even if they didn't know how to fully categorize it. They had encounters because there's nothing to explain how this faith that profits us very little, but that that connects us to God, this faith which, which led to them being totally ostracized by their communities. And yet they would not recant. They would not deny it. They went to their deaths. They went to their ostracism, declaring that God raised Jesus from the dead. And this story, this wild story, spread like wildfire across the face of the earth. It is spreading today, whether we see it or not in the West. And often we don't see it in the West. It is spreading like wildfire in many parts of the world. And we give you thanks for that, God, that we're not God, you're God. But we wanna be a part of this story, Lord. You've wooed us 
You've met us. You've loved us even when we haven't loved ourselves. You've pursued us even when we've had a, a stiff arm at you, God. And so I just, I pray, Father, as we step into 2020, both as individuals and as a church, that each person in this room would encounter you today, would hear your voice pressing deeply on their heart, the voice of a good father, a good mother, a voice that they can trust, even if it's scary, that says, I know you, I knit you together, I willed you into existence. I love you. I'm coming after you. And I won't stop until our relationship is secure and fluid and perfect. And we know that takes time. That's not gonna happen in the day. That's not gonna happen in the year. It's not gonna happen in the decade. But Lord, we wanna be available to what you wanna say to us today. So we bless your name, Jesus. We open up our, our minds and our hearts. And it's in your name we pray, amen. All right, it is a new year. It is 2020 and often new years are accompanied by new goals. I love goals, I love them. I'm, yes, I'm a type three on the Enneagram. Any threes in the room? A couple of us, we love goals. Just call us Goals McGee. We love, we love thinking of them, we love dreaming of them, we love setting them. We love meeting them, it's the best. We love goals. Um, and so this is like one of my favorite times of the year. I love it more than Christmas even because we get to set new goals. Uh, but toward the end of last year, our staff, we started gathering together to pray about, okay, God, uh, we're coming to the end of 2019 or entering into 2020. What do you wanna do with Hope Brooklyn? What do you want us to be about? And, um, and we went away and we felt like we received a collective vision that all of our hearts seemed to stir around the central theme. And so I knew that this Sunday would be our Vision Sunday where we sort of uh, um, uh, reveal it to all of us that this will be the focal point of our community this year. And so through much of December, I was praying and be like, okay, God, this is what we're gonna talk about. Uh, what passage of the Bible do you want me to use to illustrate it? Because it's a pretty broad concept, as you'll see. And um, and, and there's lots of different passages, there's lots of different stories we could use. God, which one do you want? And there was a day in December where I was, I was reading a passage of scripture from a prophet. And as I was reading it, and of course that was one of my, my underlying prayers in that time, as I was reading it, um, electricity just shot through me. And I kind of got a little lightheaded and knowledge just immediately came into my, my head and my heart of like, this is it. Like, Russ, this is what I want you, this is the Vision Sunday passage. And uh, that's how God speaks to me usually. And um, electricity, you know, it's a, it's a fun relationship. Um, but uh, the, only, the only problem with that is that the passage is kind of rough. <laughs> and it didn't seem to match my own heart at the time. I was very optimistic. I felt like we had a great year as a church. We grew, we grew spiritually, we grew numerically. Uh, many of us sort of stepped up and offered more of ourselves to God. I like it was a really good year. And it felt, the, the passage felt a little harsher uh, than what my heart was feeling. And, and so I tried to get around it, as we do. Uh, I, I read other passages. And I was like, hey, God, what about this one? It's basically the same idea, a little bit softer, might be more palatable. Um, and, and the entire time, God was like, nope, nope, this is the one. This is the one, this is the one. And one of my resolutions this year is to listen to God and to trust that he knows your hearts 
more than I love you. Because often I can step away from certain things that I feel like God is saying because I, I don't know if you guys are ready for it or I love you too much or I think I love you and that's my way of protecting you. But one of my resolutions is actually to not be a cool parent anymore, but to be a real parent. And some of y'all are like, Russell, you are never the cool parent. <laughs> Let me have my moment. <laughs> so we're gonna talk about this passage. We're gonna read this passage. We're gonna talk about it. And um, as I spent more time with it, I'm gonna explain why I think God has given it to us as a community to set the tone for the year. It comes from the prophet Amos. And it's in the fifth chapter, three verses. God is speaking in this passage, and this is what we read. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. And then there's a little superscript right beneath it that says, love dad. These are blistering words. These are really, really harsh words. God is angry at Israel. You know you're angry when you start and stop three different ideas. You can't even make a coherent sentence. He's like, I hate, I despise, I, I, I can't stand your religious festivals. Like that's, that's anger when it's just, it, you're seeing so much red, it's not even coming out right. We don't do well with anger in our society anymore. We do outrage. We do outrage well, but we don't do anger. Outrage is sort of like this group or this person over here that I don't have relationship with. And so they're very caricatured and simplistic in my heart. And so I can be outraged at something, but then I sort of brush my hands and I go the other way. I don't have to do anything about it. But anger is something different. We don't understand anger that comes from a place of deep love that says, this is my people. I would give absolutely everything for them. And therefore I have so much I want for them that they don't see. This is an anger that once Israel's heart and is tired of seeing his children settle for far less than he intended for them. Why is God angry? So angry that the very things he has asked Israel to do, the acts of devotion that he has asked them to do, he's rejecting. He's saying, get them away. If it was in our 21st century context, it would might read something like this. Like, don't even come to church. If you come to church, I'm leaving. Don't even think about giving me money. I will literally throw it back at you. If you open that Bible, I will turn my face away. If you even begin to sing that song, I might vomit. I don't know if God would say that one, but that was more me. Right? That's harsh, guys. That's blistering. Why is God so angry at Israel right now? Well, it's not just a new year, right? As we know, it's a new decade, 2020. And I know you've been seeing it. Um, there's been tons of lists of like 
the things that happened in the last 10 years. So like our Spotify list of, of the music we listened to for a decade. That was the national for Anna and me, just saying. Um, or, or, or like the list of all the things that you missed over this last year. And I, I've been reading it and it's some fascinating stuff. It's stuff that, that I, it's amazing that I forgot what all that has happened. Like for example, the time person of the year in 2010, Zuckerberg. And not for the reasons he would be time person of the year 2020. Uh, I learned that this last 10 years was the decade of movements. Here's a short list of some of the movements that have been spawned over the last 10 years. Arab Spring, Occupy Wall Street, Black Lives Matter, Me Too, March for Our Lives, the Hong Kong protest. All of these have only happened in the last 10 years. A little fun fact, uh, we were still going to Blockbuster in 2010. I'm just gonna leave that one there for you. And if you invested $1 in Bitcoin in 2010, you'd have $90,000 today. So uh, good luck in this next decade. So much has happened. And as I read and as I remembered, I started to get that lightheaded feeling again. I don't know if you've ever gotten it. Where you're staring at something, you're reading it, but it feels like you're missing something, right? It feels like there's something so obvious right beneath your nose that you, can't, that you can't see. And I was getting that feeling as I was looking at these lists. Like there was something obvious I was missing. Uh, one night over break, uh, Anna and I, uh, Anna's my wife, and we were down in Virginia with my, my family, and we just started doing this, this dumb game where there was this website listing the richest people in each state uh, in the country, and we just started guessing which ones they were. But the, the, the point for, for our purposes is that in the top 10 richest people in the country, Three of the top 10 are siblings. And the siblings, they live in different states. Uh, they each receive one third of their family's inheritance. Which means, guys, their family was so rich that they each received one third of it, and they're still the wealthiest person in their state and all three of them in the top 10 in the country. That's a lot of wealth. And so we're like, who is this family? And we learned it's the Mars family from Mars Bars, right? And, um, and I was thinking about it, like, Mars bars? No one eats Mars bars, right? Like, how are they the wealthiest family? And I learned, you probably already know this, it's because the Mars company owns pretty much all candy. <laughs> they own Skittles, they own Twix, they own Snickers, they own M&Ms, and they own pedigree pet food, because why not? <laughs> and... I realized as we were talking about this, that all of these brands, Snickers, Twix, M&Ms, whatever, are like masks that are being worn. But behind those masks is the same face. It's the same family getting paid. And here we are fighting over which one is the best, Skittles or M&Ms. It's clearly M&Ms, let's be real. Yep. Behind the mask, the same family is still making money. And, he, and here's my point. Here's my point. As I looked at how much has happened in our society over the past decade, and it has been a lot, what was obvious and what I was missing was that there was so much that was still the same. There was so much. When you take off the mask, there was so much that had not changed. Year by year, it feels like a lot. 
But when you sort of pull it back and look at the decade, there are deep similarities and patterns. Just like Mars, we can see the different brands of candy. What's harder to see is the one family behind it all. We can see the various events that have happened over the last 10 years. What is harder to see is that there are some universal assumptions and patterns that are the same across the board. Just like Amos, we can see the different acts of devotion that Israel is bringing to God. But what only God can see is that there's a consistent heart in Israel that is rotten in its core. And when we look at the last decade, what we realize is that there's an illusion of change, but the deep structural powers at play have not changed in the slightest. We thought tech would be our savior, good old Zuck. And what we realized 10 years later is, oh, he's a human that likes money and power and status like the rest of us. We thought marches and hashtags might create change, and yet looking at the stats, not much has changed other than some general sense of wokeness or whatever that means. If we really want to stop violence against women, we need to banish the entire porn industry, top to bottom but we won't because it's a multi-billion dollar industry that rivals tech giants. And there's no way we can explore, really enter into the pornography industry without seeing that at its core is an assumption in the heart that is the degradation, commodification, and violence against women's bodies. If we really wanna stop violence against marginalized groups, we need more than a one-day seminar for diversity training of a coffee company. And yet we look and we see rise in hate crimes, widening of economic disparity between groups of people in America. See, when you pull off the mask and you look beneath the surface, you see a heart in America that still cares fundamentally about one thing, itself. Its own comfort, its own safety, its own glorification, its own entertainment, its own indulgence, its own happiness. Neil Postman wrote a phenomenal book in 1985 called Amusing Ourselves to Death. He wrote it about the TV, totally not seeing the internet uh, and social media. But basically he made the claim um, that Americans, we are able to be controlled because we are addicted to entertainment. We're addicted to ourselves. And in the preface, you don't have to read the whole book, just read the preface. It is like a prophetic indictment on the scale of Amos. He talks about these, these, these two works, George Orwell's 1984 and Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. And they both had a similar charge, that the general populace is being controlled by some big state. But Orwell thought that they were being controlled by external mo motives. That's where we get the term big brother, big brother's watching. Huxley thought that they would be controlled not by being watched from the outside, but by being given everything they ever want and being coaxed to sleep. Listen to just a, a little portion of the preface of Postman's work. This is what he says. Orwell warns that we will be overcome by an externally imposed oppression. But in Huxley's vision, no big brother is required to deprive people of their autonomy, maturity, and history. As he saw it, people will come to love their oppression, to adore the technologies that undo their capacities to think. 
What Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much, we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture, preoccupied with some equivalent of the feelies, the orgy-porgy, and the centrifugal bumble puppy. As Huxley remarked in Brave New World Revisited, the civil libertarians and rationalists who were ever on the alert to oppose tyranny failed to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions. In 1984, Huxley added, people are controlled by inflicting pain. In Brave New World, they are controlled by inflicting pleasure. In short, Orwell feared that what we hate will ruin us. Huxley feared that what we love will ruin us. This book is about the possibility that Huxley and not Orwell was right. And boy, was he. See, when you look beneath the surface over the past decade, when you pull off the mask and you look beneath the surface at the assumptions and the patterns that are gearing us a certain trajectory, you see that it is our loves that is ruining us. And what our heart loves more than anything else is itself. It's comfort, it's safety, it's glorification, it's indulgence. Our loves are ruining us. But this isn't even about America. I'm not even concerned about that. I'm concerned about the church that lives in this country. I'm concerned about us who call ourselves followers of Jesus. And as I look at the heart of the church in this country, I see that it is just as co-opted. Its loves are just as aligned and paralleled with everything that Postman just said. As I look at the heart of the church here, I see deeper loves and deeper allegiances than just to Jesus alone. And there are three primary ones. I see a deeper love for power as defined by the West. That is political power. And that's on the left and the right, friends. I hear things like, God, I'll follow you, right? But certainly following you entails that the country's political opinion moves this direction, right? Or I see a heart, deeper loves, deeper allegiances, not for Jesus alone, but for wealth. God, I give you all of myself, but that, of course, means I'm financially well off, doesn't it? I mean, we both want the same thing. You would never ask me to, to part with this money or to invest it elsewhere. If you're like many of us in this room, the way we view our wealth is, well, I pay my bills first, and I go on my trips first, and I take care of all those things, and then whatever's left over, God, this is what I give to you. Or, or the, the last one that I see in our hearts, a deeper love, deeper allegiance, than to Jesus alone is to fame and celebrity. God, I wanna do your will, but of course doing your will means that I'll be seen doing it, right? Of course doing your will means I'll do what I want to do, correct? You're not calling me to a life where, where no one knows who I am, are you? You're not calling me to a life where I lay down my dreams to serve and love another person or another group of people, are you? 
And friends, when I looked at my own heart, over the last 10 years, I saw that there were, even though it felt like a lot of things had changed, like I'd given some sac- made some sacrifices for God, I still saw some things in my heart that I had not let God come even remotely close to. I saw some deeper loves, deeper allegiances. I said, that's all for you, Jesus, but not, not this over here. This one is still, I'm gonna make the, the calls on this. And if you're courageous enough to look at your own, I dare say you'd see the same. You'd see exactly what Augustine famously wrote in his work, Confessions. Paraphrase for us. I realized years later that while my lips prayed, Lord, make me pure, my heart whispered, just don't do it yet. Anyone else? You don't have to raise your hand, but anyone else find that your prayers are just like that? While my lips are saying, Lord, I want you, I want whatever you have for me, my heart over in this area is saying, no, but you can't, you're not touching this, right? Of course. I still determine where I'm going in my life. I still, I mean, we have the same goals here, which means fundamentally God is not at the core of us. It's not the primary relationship with us. Our lips say one thing, our lives reveal what our hearts are truly after, what our hearts truly love. And perhaps our loves are ruining us. And if you take a larger data set, not one year, but 10 years of decisions, 10 years of practices, 10 years of habits, you see beneath the yearly trivia patterns of behavior, patterns of thought. You start taking off the mask, you tune out your own rhetoric and bluster, and you see a heart that cares about some things but not others. You see a heart that loves some things, that makes some sacrifices, but those things have never been sacrificed. You've never even let God close to saying, to having a conversation about those things over there. And that was the issue with Amos's world. Amos is writing in the 8th century BC. In this period, uh, the, the people of Israel are split into two kingdoms, the northern and the southern kingdom. But both of these kingdoms are at the height of their power and prosperity. As, as one scholar writes about the, the, the region, the people that Amos is writing to, they are politically secure, economically indulgent, and spiritually smug. It was also a time of idolatry, extravagant indulgence and luxurious living, immorality, corruption of judicial procedures, and oppression of the poor. And so when Amos is talking, he's talking to a people of Israel that is doing all the things that God has asked them to do, but is not giving them their full heart imagining that their economic prosperity, their political security, and their global fame is a result of what they're doing, is a result of God's favor. And God's like, not at all, I hate it. Because your heart is far from me. Your heart is not giving me all of you. You're not even letting me near some parts of your soul. And look in the 10 year span, what are the things that you've not even let God near? Because your heart does not care for the others, for the poor, seeking justice in your communities. Your heart does not care for, for me or your friends and family. There's a lot, there's another sermon to talk about what Amos means when he says, let justice roll like a river, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Those Hebrew words, mishpat for justice and tzedakah for righteousness, there's a lot in there. 
But for our purposes today, what you need to know is essentially Amos is saying, you care more about yourself than about others and me. And you, you, you say you make sacrifices, but there's a limit to your sacrifices. There's a limit to how far you're willing to go and letting me in. Your mouth is praising me, but your heart loves your politics, your financial security, and being celebrated by others more than me. And I can see it. And maybe those aren't all yours. Maybe one of them registers more. Maybe there's one that's not even on that list. But if you'll look deep enough over the last 10 years, I dare say you'll find something. If you'll ask God to reveal what's within your heart, that's that sacred cow that you have not let him near. I dare say, if you're courageous enough, he'll speak. <laughs> the word for 2019, as you guys know, was groundswell. Groundswell. We were focusing on making ourselves available for the presence of God to invade us, to touch us, to awaken our minds and our hearts to a different reality, a different way of living with him. But here's what I realize. Just like remembering all that has happened over the last decade, if we, if we settle for that, and we don't allow God into those deep power structures of our hearts, if we don't allow God into those places where we realize that perhaps we don't love him the most in this world, then we'll be just going from one groundswell to the next groundswell. We'll be going from one experience to the next experience, but we'll never have a long lasting relationship with him where justice flows and righteousness rolls on. If we don't allow him to break and reshape what our hearts love, these moments of his presence will be nothing more than irrelevant trivia in the record of your life. So the word for 2020 is not groundswell, but discipleship. And that's a big word, and we're going to take all year to talk about it. But at its core, at the core of discipleship, it is a forming of intentional practices, intentional habits that demonstrate at the prompting of God that your heart loves and is willing to go after his word and what he wants for us more than anything else. It is cultivating a heart that listens to him, that makes his voice the most weighty voice in your life, that trusts his ways, that though scary, will lead you to a life of flourishing and joy and peace that we've yet to experience, but that he promises is ours if we would allow him. And we're gonna re reveal the next stage of what that looks like as our church next Sunday. But today, the question I have for us as we step into 2020 is will you let God near those sacred cows of your heart? As you step back and look over the last decade, will you let him speak about perhaps some things that, wow, you realize some things have changed, but this thing right here, 
this thing right here has remained absolutely the same. Would you let him touch it, challenge it, provoke it? Would you let him into those places? And so to do that as a church, we are going to start this year with 21 days of fasting and prayer. Now, some of you maybe are familiar with that. Some of you might not be. In the Bible, uh, you see many people fast and pray before a really, really important moment in their lives. So Moses, when he's on the mountain, he fasts for 40 days before God gives him the 10 commandments. And Esther and all the Jewish people, they fast for 10 days before she approaches the king and asks for the life of her people. The disciples, they're in the upper room fasting and praying before God sends his spirit upon them. And even Jesus fasts for 40 days before he starts his public ministry. For those unfamiliar, fasting is going without something that is really important to your daily life. Historically, it's been food, because food is really important to most of us. Going without something such that it weakens you and reminds you of your frailty, your vulnerability, and forces you to find sustenance in those moments from in other places, hopefully in God and his community of those worshiping him. And we're gonna kick this off, 21 days of fasting and prayer next Sunday, January 12th. It'll, be, it'll last through our three-week mini-series on hunger, where we talk about our relationship with Jesus. And it will culminate on Saturday, February 1st, where we'll gather in our new space, um, our new like 24-7 office space, in the afternoon for a time of prayer and worship, and then we'll break our fast together. And God has already, just so we're clear, God has already revealed to me the things that I'm fasting of. And they're gonna be hard. They're gonna be things that, um, and, and, and mindsets that I realize have been present with me for 10 years. And he's challenging me. Would you do the same? Fasting is going without good things like food. Things that have become so deeply entrenched in your heart and identity that they rival God. So perhaps for you it is food or a type of food or media or maybe you need to take on something like a gratitude journal. Maybe you need to do it longer than 21 days. I don't know. Today though, the question is, will you let God near that thing? Will you let God reveal what he revealed to Augustine? That while his mouth was praying, Lord, make me pure, I wanna be pure. His heart was saying, nah, I just don't want it yet. Would you let God reveal the things in your own heart that you're saying, God, I want this, I want that. But perhaps there's a sacred cow even deeper down which demonstrates that your heart loves and is more allegiant to that thing, that whatever it is, than it is to God. We all have them. And in this year, would we start this together? And just so you know, um, if you'll sign up, there's a sign up at the what's next table after service. You can put your name and email and commit saying, hey, I'm gonna be a part of fasting and praying as a church. We found, our, our care team, our care crew, found a 21-day devotional to lead us through this fast together. It was, it was put out by another church a couple years ago, but it's absolutely perfect and perfectly aligned for where we are as a community. So if you'll sign up, we'll email you that, uh, that, that devotional that you can do every day together as you start cultivating those habits. 
And I'm going to invite the worship team back up and I'm going to end with this on why it's really important and really fascinating what God was doing. So the interesting thing about the words that, uh, that Amos uses in that last verse where he says, let justice roll down like, like a river and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. In the Hebrew, the word for roll basically means breaching a dam. So removing some blockage so that the current of water can flow, right? That makes sense. When he says righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, the word for ever-flowing has at the root uh, a word that you may or may not recognize, a wadi. And a wadi in Israel's time was like a standing pool of water. It's where they would go and they would um, collect water. But a wadi was not connected to a larger body of water, which meant that its resources would be depleted. And Israel would have to pray for rain. And when the rain came, it would fill the wadi back up and they would have more water. So they lived from one rain to the next. This is in distinction from an ever-flowing stream, a stream, a wadi that is connected to a larger body of water. So you don't have to pray for rain because you always have a continual replenishing supply of water. Friends, if you don't remove the blockages in your heart, deep down, then you're just gonna be going from one groundswell experience to the next with God, praying for his touch tomorrow and his touch tomorrow, which we need. Praying for rain, going three months without it, praying for more. Or we begin to remove those blockages. We begin to let God near those sacred cows, which terrifies, because how can we live without them? We've lived with them for so long. We don't know who we are without them, but we trust him. We trust that he is as good as he says he is. And we allow him to remove those blockages, perhaps through fasting and prayer. We go without them. We try something different. We reconnect ourselves to the living water himself. So then we don't have to wait for the rains to come. We have a daily, hourly supply of the presence of God. Justice flows. Righteousness rolls. And coming from a guy who's just realized that not all of my heart is God's, and there are some things that he wants to take this year, like one of them being listening to his voice more than I think I love you. That's a sacred cow, because what if you reject me? What if you don't like me anymore? What if I say something that God is saying, this is what we need to hear, but it, it, it makes you angry and you reject me? I don't wanna be rejected, I'm terrified of that. A lot of people who are afraid of rejection become pastors. <laughs> but I have to trust that his love for me is far better and far richer than whether you love or don't love me. That's a sacred cow. And there are others. Would you let God near them? That's all he's asking today. Would you open up your heart 
and say, God, what are the things that you want me to give up? What are the things you want to focus on? Not the year-to-year things, but the decade things. The things that have been around a very long time. Will you say yes to that this year? So you're not praying for one rain after the next, but instead it flows because you're connected to the living water himself. So will you pray with me? And right now we're just gonna take 30 seconds. And if you'd allow, if you're courageous, would you just simply ask, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, would you ask God, what is that sacred cow in my heart that's been around for 10 years plus that you want to draw near? Maybe it's a relationship or a lack of one. Maybe it's a certain city that you said, I I would only live here, I'll never live there. Maybe it's a certain vision and understanding of your finances, of what security looks like. Maybe it's a belief, maybe it's a substance. Maybe it's a symbol of practice. But God, right now, would you reveal to every heart what it is that you want them to let go of, to have hearts that love you, Jesus, more than anything else. Perhaps there's someone in this room that the blockages, they actually just need to trust you for the first time and say, I wanna follow you, Jesus. Perhaps that's where it starts. God, we don't want our heart to be compromised. We don't want to be co-opted to love the things the rest of society loves. We will love them, but only because we love you first, that we are most allegiant to you. We are most desirous of you. And we're terrified because these are things that we haven't gone without for 10 years. Who will be on the other side of this sacrifice, of this surrender? What will we look like? We don't know. But we trust in that you've shown us last year what your presence is like. We trust that you are good and it is far better than what our fears keep us from right now. And so God, remove the blockage. We are committing 2020 to you. We are committing this year this decade to something brand new and we can't do it ourselves, but we let you near it. So give us a step and give us the courage to say yes. We say yes because God, you always say yes to us. You've always said yes. We trust you. We love you. Amen. Would you stand? And we're gonna respond with a song. And as we sing, would you let God speak to your heart? of what he might be asking you to let go. To find out more about the mission of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday gatherings, brunch, how to financially contribute, and a whole lot more, 
check us out online at www.hopebrooklyn.org. Thanks to Liz Vice at lizvice.com for the music and to you for tuning in. See you next week. <laughs>